Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Dogs Program here on 3CR855 on the AM Dial and podcast on the WWW. Welcome back, I suppose, because we're here every week um, on a Saturday having a lovely time talking about the issues to do with education in Australia. And um, as you can probably hear through your speakers in the car or in the home, um, I'm back. Uh, yeah, I lost my voice last week. Some people would say that's probably a good thing. Um, yeah, quite right too. Um, some people say that's a good thing, but um, I think the issues that Jean and I and Dale have to put out on the airways on 3CR are actually important. Um, today we're going to be discussing a whole range of topics. There's been all sorts of things going on. We'll be talking about Indigenous education and how there is a relationship between educating Indigenous and Aboriginal kids here in Australia and the way the school systems divide children up. And later in the program, of course, we'll be talking about our great state school. And there's a big connection with Indigenous education in our great state school up there in Shepparton. Um, Also, we'll be talking about what's going on in the United States, but we'll be bringing things back here as well. Um, We're going to be talking about the relationship that um, people who advise the government on education have and the skills they possess. We've noticed, in fact, just over the last decade or so, that people who advise the government on education aren't necessarily... um, have any knowledge, don't necessarily have any knowledge about education. It's a strange thing. People talk about the Gonski report, for instance. Gonski's not a teacher. Gonski's not an educationalist. Gonski's a lawyer. (laughs) Strange. Um, Anyway, we'll be talking about that, and, of course, we'll be talking, finishing off a very interesting and in-depth analysis of the education system and what's happening to it in the United States under the incumbent president they have over here. I think his name is Trump, President Trump the incredible things that are very quickly happening to the education system in the United States, not all of which, in fact, not any of which, are any good. But this is all coming up here on the DOGS program, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And as Gene would always say, we are the DOGS. We are the defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S. And the truth is... The Smith Street Dreaming Festival is coming soon. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals. This year, we're featuring Dave Arden and Band, Alice Skye, Benny Walker, Birds, the Jury Jury Dance Group and Indigenous Hip Hop Projects with MC Layla Guruwiri from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming, corner of Smith Street and Stanley Street's Collingwood. Saturday, July the 22nd, 1pm to 5 o'clock. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. Smith Street Dreaming is a drug and alcohol free event and a 3CR supporter. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late. And we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. Good afternoon, listeners. Here is our press release. 
uh, which goes up on our website at www.adogs.info. Unfortunately, in this last week, the website hasn't been doing everything I've asked it to do, but we hope that that will be fixed up in the near future. But this is Press Release 755. Where do Indigenous children go to school? Where are they? Well, thanks to the My School website and um, other data, Chris Ho and Gary Richards, together with Chris Bonner, have taken a very close look at the data. And they've done a biograph, a very interesting biograph. The biograph goes from 0 to 18. And it shows where Indigenous students are actually enrolled. The lowest enrolment of Indigenous students is in high Ixia Catholic schools. The Catholic schools that have a high Ixia, that is uh, more wealthy, children of wealthy parents, have less Indigenous students, less, much less than 2%, and it's falling, it has been falling. There are less than there were a couple of years ago. The next um, group that have very few Indigenous children, children enrolled in them, a little bit more than 2%, are high Ixia government public schools in wealthy areas. The next group that have um, a low Indigenous enrolments, about 5%, but falling, are low Ixia Catholic schools. And then you have, I'm sorry I've left out in between there, uh, the independent schools that only have about 3% Indigenous children enrolled in them. One would assume some of those could well be mission schools. The medium Ixia government schools are the next with between 6 and 7% of students, Indigenous students, um, and they're much the same. They're, they're less than there were a couple of years ago, but not very many. But guess which schools have got by far, far, far away the most Indigenous children enrolled in them? They are the low Ixia, that is, children with the lowest amount of income going around the household, those children. We all know them. We know these government schools, teachers know them very, very well. That doesn't mean to say that these children aren't still very, very special or very, very clever, but that's where the Indigenous children are. And um, Chris Bonner has this to say. There are also trends that he points out on his bar graph and the trend which shows the greatest increasing number of Indigenous children is the low Ixia government schools. And the ones that show the lowest downturn are the high Catholic schools and the high public schools. The lowest Ixia government schools have large Indigenous enrolments and an increasing share of the most disadvantaged, therefore. The higher Ixia schools also enrol Indigenous students, but their share of the disadvantaged in general is falling. Now, this enrolment of Indigenous students is symptomatic. It's resembling the way that we're slicing and dicing all of our students throughout Australia. The advantaged are going more and more to the higher Ixia schools and the strugglers increasingly are in a class of their own, strugglers. And this does not close any gaps. Remember all those closing the gaps? Remember all the committees? Remember all the talk fests about Indigenous children? This is not closing the gaps. 
And Chris Bonner points out this is something to remember the next time a sector boasts about their enrolment of Indigenous children. Their little blow for equity is just another part of the problem. And of course, dear listeners, the answer to this problem and many other problems is to have all of our children in the same kind of school which is open to all children. It shouldn't matter whether a child is Indigenous or not. That child is an Australian child who has a right to the best quality education that this country can afford. And that should be what we're about, not dividing children. And the reason why the dogs for 50 years have opposed the uh, giving of our taxpayers' money to private schools, religious schools, is because these schools divide our children. That is their function, to divide the children. The good thing about our low government ICSIA schools is that our first Australians are in there with our later Australians and that is a good school to be in for that very reason. Well, that's all I'd like to say about that. Last week we had something to say, didn't we, about Gonski. We don't usually get into curriculum problems, but Gonski 2.0 and Gonski 1.0 do, on on the surface, just avoid the real problems, the real problems of having all our children in the same kind of school open to all, a public school. The first Gonski wasn't allowed to talk about that, no child was going to lose a dollar, so the um, no school was going to lose a dollar, and that was the private schools were going to get a bit more again, and it was going to become more unequal, however much he talked about equality. Actually, Jean, I'd go further than that. In the first Gonski, when they set up the conditions and the preconditions for the report, they specifically stated that the school sectors themselves, the fact that there were in Australia private schools of both Catholic and non-Catholic inclination and state schools, that very fact was not allowed to be discussed at all at any point within the report itself. It could not be articulated as a problem, could not be articulated as a solution. In fact, the report was... Gillard, Gillard, when she set it up, said, no, this is a sector-blind report. So if indeed the solution to Australia's educational inequity problems was in fact to defund the private school system, if that was in fact the solution, which we here at the Dog State is, is the obvious solution to Australia's educational problem, if Gonski found that out, if Ken Boston found that out, they could not, they were prohibited from including that simple fact in the report. So Gonski, in, in any iteration, Gonski 1.0, 2.0, or the inevitable 3.0 when, when, when the time comes in the future, um, as long as that is held back, it's like saying, how can we, how can we win the battle, Mr. Napoleon? I said, well, we, we just need more cavalry, well, but we don't have any. Um, you know, you can't look at the obvious problems. Oh, Gonski was not allowed to on, on either occasion. So when you say that there were there, there were sort of restrictions, that they weren't just simple, tiny, little itsy bitsy restrictions. They were fundamental as far as the dogs dogs are concerned. Well, in the old days, you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting so old. But in the old days, um, when there was a problem like this, the Labor Party, not the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party or the Liberal Coalition is usually more um, aggressive. Uh, divisive, but the Labor Party, when you had a problem like state aid, set up committees so that anybody who might make a problem for them would feel very important because they were part of the decision-making process. It's called co-option or collaboration, whichever way you want to look at it. But what interests me about the current situation is that this unacceptable school funding model has left teachers out of the equation. The teachers haven't been considered at all. I think the Birmingham crew, the people in Canberra, Turnbull, regard teachers as somehow not even public servants, but servants, not terribly important people at all, although they are there to be 
are bashed, there's plenty of teacher bashing around if the results aren't what they think they should be. So I have here a very interesting uh, news release from the AEU, the Australian Education Union. And it was the 22nd of June that they had this to say. The teaching profession could refuse to cooperate with the Turnbull government's education funding reforms, which will leave nearly nine in ten public schools in Australia without enough funding to meet the needs of each student by 2023. These are strong words. If you don't buy the leaders of your interest groups out, if you don't get them to co-opt and collaborate, they just might get a bit gung-ho. Interesting. The Council of Australian Governments, that's the COAD, Education Council, was meeting in late June in Adelaide to discuss bilateral funding agreements which will leave 87% of Australian public schools below the schooling resource standard. Under Federal Education Minister Simon Birmingham's public education funding plan, $1.9 billion will be cut from public school funding in 2018 and 2019. That's a lot of money. By 2023, only 13% of public schools will receive enough funding to reach the minimum schooling resource standard. So it's not just Catholic schools, allegedly, that are being uh, cut The real cut is going on in public education. The Australian Education Union Federal President, Karina Haythorpe, said that the teaching profession had been left out of the consultation process and as a result they could refuse to cooperate with the current reform agenda. Any discussions going forward, she says, must have teachers at the table. Well, I don't know about that. Sometimes it's better not to be co-opted and to be be collaborating. But Karina said that the AEU would not accept anything less than 100% SRS funding for every public school. Federal Education Minister Simon Birmingham's inadequate, flawed funding model shows utter contempt for the teaching profession, she said. It does. Yes, it does. She's right. Every education minister going into that meeting must understand how deeply felt this issue is within the teaching profession. We are outraged that a national agreement is being considered without any consultation with teachers. They weren't even on on the Gonski 2.0 or even on the 1.0, were they? Mr Birmingham, she said, was to impose his reform agenda on a deeply inequitable and under-resourced school system and that is unacceptable to our members. He is a minister who clearly can't work with people. She said there would be no significant education reform in Australia if teachers were not involved in the process. Principals, it's not just the teachers that have been left out, it's the principals too. Principals and teachers, she says, are at the heart of learning in our schools and Simon Birmingham is driving an agenda which removes teachers from the debate. He's disrespecting the teaching profession. He's trying to impose a reform agenda without any consultation and without the fair funding needed for our schools. You can't impose change without substantial investment. And the way things stand, just 13% of public schools will meet the minimum funding benchmark by 2023. So the state, she says, should get a commitment from the Commonwealth to secure full funding for all schools so that all public schools reach 100% of the schooling resource standard before making any agreements with Simon Birmingham. Well, perhaps she could ask... Uh, Mr Andrews and the gentleman up in Queens, up in New South Wales, sorry, it's a lady up in New South Wales and go further up to Queensland and all around Australia and the state ministers could perhaps say, okay, we'll just take the funding back from the private sector and give it to the public schools. That way it will be fairer. She hasn't asked for that though, but the dogs would suggest that. Under Turnbull's school funding plan, public schools receive zero capital funds for much-needed new and upgraded classrooms and facilities, while private schools are going to get $1.9 billion in capital works special deal. 
Just a minute, that's the $1.9 billion that they're going to take away in 2018-19 from public schools. Very interesting. Uh, apparently there's going to be a capital fund of $300 million, which was recommended by the Gonski Review, uh, and, and that hasn't been established to help the public schools meet the rising enrolment go- growth. Very interesting. And so the Turnbull government's cut to funding in five states for students with disability should also be reversed. And the National School Resourcing Board should immediately review the three levels of funding for students with disability to better align them with the actual costs of delivering high-quality education. So um, uh, it's all very interesting, very, very interesting indeed. You see, I go back to the Schools Commission when the funding started, the real floodgates opened to private schools and the money did come through, not a lot, but some money did come through to disadvantaged public schools. And the Labor Party in those days, Mr Beasley, kept the teachers quiet until from 1973 until 1984 uh, by having them sit on the Schools Commission. So the teacher representatives were party to the channeling of huge amounts of money into the private sector. But then the teacher representative wrote a dissenting report in 1984. And that was the end of the Schools Commission. But ever since then, the teachers have had less and less involvement. They're just expected to sit down and take the cuts to their schools, accept contract employment. Young people coming out from university are expected to choose their own mentors now, if they can find them, amongst the very, very busy teachers in our public schools. And the principals only have so much in their budget, so they are employing young, inexperienced teachers who, after five years, have had enough and are leaving the system. So um, it's very interesting. I find it very interesting that the uh, Conservative government, the Turnbull government, thinks that they can treat the people who keep our schools running in this way. They obviously despise them. Perhaps it is time that the teachers were out in the streets and striking and also saying that they are not going to accept these funding cuts. But Robert, you have some theories about what is actually going on in the minds of our born-to-rule rulers up in Canberra, such that they think that important people like teachers can just be completely ignored when it comes to talking about education. Yes, thank you, Jane. I'll I'll expound upon my theories um, after a little bit of music.
welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs around the World Wide Web. Um, if you're interested in what Jean's been talking about in detail press release and other information, you can get hold of it on our website at www.adogs.info or indeed just click through from the link on 3CR at 3cr.org.eu. Um, look, my theories are very simple. Politicians are little tiny vessels blown about by the winds of lobby groups on a sea of voters. Um, if, the, if no one votes for them, then they just sink and die and disappear and never hear from them again. Um, but what they do and the way they act... Um, they are literally blown. Um, they don't necessarily have any engines of their own, as much as you like to hear about ideological thises and thatses. Um, if you ever do come across an ideological politician, they never seem to last long. So, for instance, David Lionel, he's, a, he's an ideologue of sorts. I don't think he's going to last very long. Um, but the winds that blow in the education debate at federal politicians come from two major sources, one of which, of course, is the independent school sector. Um, they blow very hard, and the Catholic school system and the bishops also blow very hard because both of those lobby groups are funded by the taxpayers, ironically. Uh, the Catholic Church is certainly funded by you and I um, in, when it comes to education in Australia and the independent school system. So those two groups just lately have having been, have, they haven't been blowing in the same direction. They've been blowing in different directions to each other, and the politicians are going, oh, should we give these people money or give those people money? The one place where the winds do not blow from anymore is the state school sector. There's us here on the dogs puffing away as we always do and have been doing for decades now, just saying the very simple truth that investing in public education and public education alone is the only way to ensure that every child in Australia has an equal opportunity from birth. Because in Australia it is just accepted cant that the family you're born into will determine your educational opportunity much more than the school that you go to. That's just the truth. Jean talks about Ixia, um, Ixia values or SES values or poor, poor kids or rich kids. It is a disgusting thing that those are facts in the Australian education environment. This is not true in other civilised countries. It's just a particular thing about Australia and it's only been developed in the last couple of generations. It's just the truth that poor people get poor education and rich people get rich education, independent of which school you go to. Anyway, my theory is based around this principle that it never used to be this way. Whenever politicians wanted to make a decision about what to do and what the best thing to do, would, they, would, they would look to a pool of talent. They would say, well, who knows about this thing? If we want to do something about banking, who knows about banking? If we want to do something about education, who knows about education? If we want to do something about defence, who knows about defence? And there would be some sort of, vaguely corrupt, I'm sure, but at least it was in, in name, a meritocracy. Whereas the advisers, the courtiers to government, would be rotated through based upon the skills that they possessed. And so the advice they gave would be at least, in appearance, um, fair and frank. I mean, this is separate, of course, to the various um, public institutions that we have in terms of the bureaucracy. The but ones that have been privatised. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the good old days when the idea of privatising something like the State Revenue Office would, would be completely out of bounds, and these days, of course, they're thinking about such things. Um, I'm talking about then and now. These days, let's, let's, let's skip to now. Um, we have courtiers you know, to, to, to the Court of Federal Parliament, which have a very different stripe. Um, for instance, just in terms of the education, but Gonski, what does Gonski know about education? Well, the answer is nothing. He, he never knew anything about education. He never professed to know anything about education. He was a lawyer. He was a banker. He was, he was, he was a man from the North Shore with, who was well-connected, who sat on a great number of boards, I think, including Telstra and Qantas. And also uh, the grammar school in Sydney. Well, that was all he knew about education. He was a grammar school boy. Okay, so he, he, he was the recipient of a, by definition, privileged education, and that was his sum total of his knowledge to do with education. This did not seem to be a barrier in terms of the federal government hiring him to run a review of the entire nation's education system. Now, bear in mind, he did get some people on his, on his panel who did know something about education, but he himself did not. But the people who did get on his panel, with the exception of one, were all private school educated um, and, had, and were no friends of, of state education. So the Gosky 1.0 and 2.0, I think, fits a pattern. 
In the modern days, if the government seeks to find a courtier to write a report to advise them on something, um, do not seek someone with expertise in the area. What you will do is you will find, find someone who's a lawyer or a banker or indeed an economist to come along and write a report that reflects the blowing winds that um, define the environment, define the, the, the political weather. And in Canberra, if anyone had been to Canberra or knows Canberra knows, the winds that define the weather for the politicians are created by the lobby groups. It has been a, a very large number of years now since the federal government was the majority employer in Canberra. The federal government does not employ the majority of people who have jobs in Canberra. They are, in fact, a disaggregated mob who are employed by lobbyists of one form or another are the majority employer of people who are working in Canberra. That is the way the government works. That's not the way government worked 30 or 40 years ago, but it is the way government works. Now, the people who used to be working as public servants have transferred over into various consultancies, consulting from various lobby groups to influence the political winds such that the politicians blow upon the sea of the voters in, in, in the way that is, is, is best for the advantage of, of, of particular specific interests. And when it comes to education, the two specific interests in Australia that are the most powerful, that have the, the greatest voice, are not us here at the Dogs, and it's not the AU, it's the independent school lobby, and indeed the Catholic Church, which runs the largest private school system in Australia by far. And that's just, that's just mechanics. What I'm talking about here is, 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 is how the engine works. And the Australian population, I think, are in large part aware of this. Whether they're happy about it or not, um, I don't think they are. There's a large number of people who are very dissatisfied, not just with individual politicians, but how politicians work, how the system actually works. I think a lot of politicians, including specifically the federal leaders, are saying, well, we're going to have an election and we want to win the election, we want to beat the other guys. But what they don't realise is the Australian population, when they say, oh, they're all as bad as each other, they're not saying personally. This is not a personal attack when someone says that about politicians and politics. When they say, oh, they're all as bad as each other, that's actually saying, your system's broken, mate, fix it. Yeah, the car's not running. The way the winds blow is not the way, you know, the way lobby groups are not me, mate, said the typical voter. The problem for them is that there are, in fact, a lot of warm currents, Robert, a lot of warm currents on the internet. There are a lot of people who are also data collectors, who are experts, who even are teachers or principals who are quite determined to get the information out there. And that is what, in the end, will bring the government down. There are a lot of warm currents of communication that the lobbyists and the politicians are no longer controlling. And 3CR is one of them. Indeed. And here at the Dogs, we, we, we make our own little tiny attempt to actually affect the change that is required. Um, in the Australian polity, certainly when it comes to education. Look, I'll be returning, and um, I think we're going to leave Australia now, because Australia's getting a little bit heavy and political and boring, and we're going to go over to uh, the United States and finish off um, a very interesting article written in the Washington Post. We've been highlighting it over the last two weeks. And I think we should find out what's going on in the US, because when we find out what happens in the US, we know what's going to happen here in Australia in a couple of years' time. We'll be returning with the dogs after this. Yeah, I'm Brian. This is Nigel. How are you going? Happy night of week. And yeah, we're just going to do a bit of solo on the DJ. Beautiful. In July 2018, 3CR proudly presents Beyond the Bars coming to you right across NAIDOC week. Beyond the Bars is Australia's only live prison radio broadcast giving a voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates. On Monday, July 9th, we're live from Deer Park Women's Prison from 11am. On Tuesday, July 10th, we're at Barwon Prison from 11 till 2. On Wednesday, July 11th, you can hear from the men at Fulham between 12 and 2 and then catch the men from Loddon Prison between 2 and 4. On Thursday, July 12th, we're live from Port Phillip Prison. And on Friday, our final broadcast for the week is from Marganet Correctional Centre between 11 and 2. Make sure you tune in for Beyond the Bars 2018, Monday, July 9th through to Friday, July 13th, celebrating NAIDOC Week with the men and women inside. 
The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I was promising before the break I'd, I'd tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the United States under the um, regime. Uh, well, under, under the presidency, I should say, of Donald Trump. Look, there's this thing called charter schools. Now, charter schools are private schools. They are publicly funded, so that is, they take taxpayers' money, but they are run independently as um, they have their own specific charter. So it's a private school that's publicly funded. It's a particularly American invention because in America they actually do have separation of religion from the state. Oh, well, that might be changing very soon with, uh, with another uh, Supreme Court appointment, Robert. Indeed, but at the moment in their constitution, which they tend to go on about, usually about guns, but in their constitution um, they do have, and it has been up until, up until this current going to air here on Saturday, um, separation of religion from the state, which means that um, at a very fundamental level the government cannot give a religion money to perform an educational service. Right. Up front. They can't do it up front. Here in Australia, of course, we do that all the time. Billions of dollars, one, you know, billions and billions of dollars get given to various religious institutions to um, perform the function of the state, which is to educate the children. Uh, but in the United States, that's not allowed because they had this whole revolution thing. And when they set up America um, back in the day, religion was a very big question. They said, let's just, let's just not talk about that. Let's just separate religion from the state. So you can have your theological arguments and we can have our wars and we don't want to have theological arguments that turn into wars. That's the whole point of separation of religion from the state. Anyway, as a result of that, they have these called, what they called public charter schools. Now, the enrolments in the United States increased from about a little bit over a million, dollar, million kids to around about three million kids at, at the current time. Now, this number of kids in charter schools is still tiny compared to the overall size of kids in schools in the US. For example, the federal government projects about 50 million students would attend public and charter schools and about 5.2 million will attend in America. They have private schools, but private schools are entirely privately funded by the parents and religious institutions themselves. So just to qualify, in the United States, they have Catholic schools, for instance, which are funded by the parents and the church not by the state. Oh, just interestingly enough, in the United States, two million kids um, are homeschooled. So that's around about or 4% of kids in the US are homeschooled. But charter schools in the US are highly concentrated geographically. And in those, ge- in, and in those particular areas, they will substantial political clout. So, for instance, 92% of students in New Orleans attend charter schools. A bit over half attend charter schools in Detroit, and a bit under half attend charter schools in the District of Columbia. Charter networks run well-funded lobbying efforts in most states, and as of November last year, only six states did not allow charter schools at all. There are still some states, because it's a a state-based system over there, that think charter schools are against the Constitution and you shouldn't privatise education. And education is locally funded too. It is. Now, to justify the existence of charter schools, reformers have always claimed that charter schools outperform public schools and that most low-income and minority students attend. Indeed, unless charter schools perform better, they serve no purpose other than choice for the sake of choice, regardless of quality. Now, to measure performance... Choice for the sake of choice. Since 2009... A pro-privatisation research centre located at Stanford University has regularly conducted nationwide studies comparing the test scores of charter school students to the scores of demographically similar students in district public schools. The studies have generated a fairly consistent, albeit very rough, picture of average performance nationwide. About one half of all charter schools perform at the same level as district schools, 
and about one half perform worse. And about one quarter perform better. Sorry, I'll take that back. One half perform the same, one quarter perform worse, and about one quarter perform minuscule amounts better. Not statistically significant, because we've got to have our hours and quarters adding up, of course. Now, a much clearer picture of performance came from state and district studies and not national averages. In 2016, for example, a study of charter schools in Texas found that at mean, charter schools have no impact on test scores and a negative impact on future earnings. These mediocre results fall far short of what the reformers' claims would be. Now, as for the high-performing charter schools, research has shown that they often boost test scores by... Now, this is an interesting factor that we have here in Australia, by what they call counselling out challenging students. Those with cognitive or physical disabilities, behavioural problems and English language learners, these ones are what they call counselled out. These students remain in the school districts, increasing the concentration of at-risk students in precisely the districts that have lost the funding to the charter schools. Because every time you have a child in a, in a charter school, or indeed a private school, it's counselled out, they have to go somewhere. And of course they go to the only place that has proper values, which is in fact the state school. In 2013-14 school year, the Budget Facilities and Audit Committee in the United States, indeed in Los Angeles, reported that 1.2% of charter school students were severely disabled. The figure of the district overall was 3.8%, more than three times as much. In December 2017, the American Civil Liberties Union of Arizona released the results of an investigation of 471 charter schools, which found that 56% had enrolled policies that clearly violated the law or discourage at-risk students. For example, Spanish is the most commonly spoken language after English, but only 26% of these schools provided enrolment documents in both languages. Attrition rates, that is, how many students drop out of school or class in a given period, are strikingly high for high-testing charter schools. In 2006, Maritsky launched Success Academy Charter Schools, Incorporated, with 73 first graders. In 2018, this class became the first to graduate from the Academy's high school, but only 17 of the original 73 early enrollees remained. The attrition rate at this particular Academy charter school was 77%. Now, what is it? What, what, are the, what is the fuel for these charter schools in the US? Well, the goal of a staunch voucher system advocate is to replicate the system that Milton Freeman proposed back in 1955, a taxpayer-funded voucher for every student to use a free market or secular and religious school. Several states now offer vouchers to all families regardless of income, but public support for such universal programs in the US is low. To get around this obstacle, Ed Reformers promote programs limited to low-income students, students in low-performing schools or students with special needs. They've also devised several variations on vouchers, all of which channel the public funds to private schools, but avoid the popular V word. These are called private school tuition tax credits, allow families to subtract the cost of tuition from the taxes that they pay. Well, we've actually got both of those in Australia. We've got the resource standard, that's a good voucher system, and we've got private school parents who can take the fees and other thing, other educational expenses as exemptions on their income. They keep on telling us, oh, we pay taxes too, we pay taxes too. But do they? Do they? So we've had versions of the voucher system and the tax credits in Australia for a long time. Indeed. Look, donors also cycle money through private not-for-profit school tuition organisations. Rerouting the money this way, reformers argue, prevents any violation of the separation of religion and the state. And this middleman separates the government funding or the tax credits from religious institutions and schools. This is the same system we use here in Australia when it comes to funding chaplaincy. When a chaplain is defined as, specifically defined as in Australia, as someone who has a religious training and background and works in a state school. They have to be religious and working in a state school to get government funding. That is the fact in Australia. How can this possibly be the case in Australia, where we nominally at least have separation of religion from the state? Well, there's an intermediary. 
the government gives the money to the state government, the state government has no such prohibition, then the state government gives it to an organisation which is not religious, then the organisation pays it to the religious chaplain. And that way, the Americans are trying to use the Australian model to get religion, indeed religious schools up and running with taxpayers' money in the United States. Yeah, tricky. Pretty simply tricky. It's not, it's not, not very sophisticated and it's obviously quite cynical. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because we're sort of running out of time again. But we're, I'm going to return to this article by the Washington Post. I'm, I'm going to get through, through to the end of it because it's just so meaty and it's so interesting in terms of predicting where the debate's going to go in Australia. Because as I say, if we look across the Pacific Ocean of the United States, we can usually tell what's going to happen in Australia in a few years' time because we are followers, not leaders. Oh, I hope we don't follow into the sort of polemic populism of the United States and other things. But um, well, as you as you expressed it, I would say that Canberra is starting to look like a Washington swamp. But um, surely there are other ways of dealing with this than producing a Trump. Indeed. Um, look, we'll be back um, with our great state school after this. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjadmi Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net, a 3CR supporter. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State schools. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3 cr on the AM Dolan podcast on the WWWs. Well, after all that misery, let's have a nice little cheery thing because I'm going to talk about Wilmot Road. Wilmot Road's a nice place up there in Shepparton and Wilmot Road has a primary school on it. It's a really cool primary school. Sorry, I just really like it because there's 300 kids up there at Wilmot Road and it's a little primary school, Peter Six, having a great time. Um, look... The vast majority of the kids in that school, um, their parents are doing it tough. That's just the way it is up in Shepparton. 70% of the kids up there at Wilmot Primary School come from a background language other than English. And over 10% of the kids in that school are Indigenous. Now, Shepparton, for a number of years now, has been one of the places that has absorbed a large amount of immigration um, in Australia. And the school's ICSIA value, remember, you know, ICSIA value, Jean was talking about that, the median for Australia is a 1,000, um, it's 860, which means that 80% of the kids that go to that school are in the lowest quartile for income. Yeah, poor in money, but not necessarily poor in spirit, not necessarily poor in education. 50, 15% are in the bottom middle quartile. 1% are in the top quartile and 6% are in the middle top, which means that basically 94% of the kids are in the poorest half of Australians' mm. households. So struggling in terms of what goes on in terms of money at home. But the school itself, oh, man, <laughs> I really want to talk about this school. It's an awesome little place. It's around the kids. Now, that because there's a large number, a significantly large number, 76% of the kids come from a background language other than English, and many of them are refugees, which means the kids have freshly arrived to Australia and they are learning English. Um, a lot of these kids need a lot of support, and they're getting it. Thank you very much, Mr Andrews and the State Government. Um, in terms of the finances of this school, there's about $16,000 going, $16, per kid going to every kid, and quite frankly, that's good taxpayers' money being well spent. 12000 of that's from the State Government, a bit over, almost thirteen. And about $4,000 of that's being kicked in by the um, federal government as well. 
fees and charges. How much are the parents supposed to be coughing up in this school for their kids? Well, the answer is per kid, $39 per year. It's nice to hear a small number when it comes to a state school. So I think if parents are being asked to contribute $39 or do contribute $39 each year, I think that's small enough to be even called. Actually, it's, it's actually a proper state school. It's free, secular and compulsory. So how are the kids doing? How are the kids doing at Wilmot Road Primary School? Well, the answer is compared to similar schools, they are absolutely caning it. <laughs> In all the test scores, they're well above average in writing and spelling and numeracy and grammar, and they're certainly above the average in reading. Um, it's just this nice little happy place up there at Shepparton with kids from all around the world, from the Horn of Africa, and, of course, 10% of the kids from that school come from an Indigenous background as well. well. Mr Gonski should be speaking to those teachers, shouldn't he? And so should Mr Turnbull and Mr Shorten. But the one thing I really, really like about school, this, this, is, this is something that I just absolutely have to share with you, the dear listeners. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, back in the day, um, I learned all my history and stuff, and I love history. I mean, anyone who knows me can, can, can testify that I have an absolute passion for history. The one thing that I missed in my education was the history of the land upon which I stood. I learned about the history of the Greeks and the Romans and, and the glories of Western civilization. I tell you, Mr Abbott would have been very pleased with my education. Um, I got all of that, but I did not get the history of the land upon which I stood. Indigenous history, Aboriginal history, the history of the people who, who lived in the land for tens of thousands of years before I stood there was something that was completely absent from my education. But that is not the case for the kids at Wilmot Road up there in Shepparton. What's happened up there is that those kids are getting in touch with the Indigenous history upon the land upon which they stand there in Shepherd. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, about four years ago, a bloke called Tim Warwick discovered one of his students was a descendant of a prominent Aboriginal activist here in Victoria called William Cooper. But he'd never had the opportunity to learn about the fact that his ancestor was actually famous. Now, Mr Cooper, by the way, is an amazing figure of national significance, not just Victorian. Um, and perhaps if you're interested, you can just Google William Cooper. He was a dude. Um, and he said, this is ridiculous. I'm a teacher in a school, and this child has a direct connection to extraordinary history about, about the people who've lived here before white people arrived, and nobody knows. He, this kid doesn't know, and I think we should share this. So Vic Shepparton, by the way, up there in Shep has Victoria's largest Aboriginal community outside Melbourne. And it's part of the region that once hosted significant cultural and political movements, such as, in fact, the Kamangaria walk-off. Um, now, prominent activists such as Mr Cooper, considered the father of Aboriginal civil rights movement, and Sir Douglas, and Sir Douglas Nichols have both called the town home. But a lack of Indigenous culture and history was identified within the region's schools. Well, that's not true anymore. That was until local principals network, not just Wilmot, the principals, state school principals got together. They didn't fight, they didn't compete, they weren't, they weren't choosing anything. They got together with the Aboriginal Community Network and produced a curriculum based upon the people who have lived upon the land upon which they stood for thousands and thousands of years. Now this curriculum covers the local history and culture of Indigenous people and encompasses the interactive curriculum of students from prep all the way up to Year 10. Now, almost half of the schools across the region have rolled this out, including, of course, Wilmot Road Primary School. It covers civil rights history, the arts and the people, and connects, connects the kids to the country and, indeed, to the living elders who live there right now. Now, the fascinating thing, which I'm really excited about this, is the curriculum is adjusted and different for every school because every school stands, stands on a different part of the land because the whole concept of, you know, nation, states and this is and that is, 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 is a strange and wonderful thing. And when you're talking about developing an Indigenous curriculum, finally someone's come up with the idea, well, it's going to be different for each school, isn't it? Because each school's in a different place doing a different thing. And that's what they've done. They're, they're using the local Indigenous community networks and developing curriculum for each school, and that's exactly what they're doing at Wilmot Road. So not only is Wilmot Road Primary School 
a great state school doing great things with the kids for spelling and writing and grammar and numeracy and reading. But those kids, and I have to say I'm just absolutely full-on jealous, those kids get stuff that I never got. It's not even fair. (laughs) Actually, it is fair. I think it's brilliant. So congratulations. Wilmot Road Primary School. You are a great state school. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Which brings us to the end of our little dogs program here. We are the Defenders of Government Schools. If you're interested in what we're talking about, then please, please indeed, give us a check out on our website at www.adogs.info or indeed at the 3CR website. You can get hold of us there at 3CR. .org.au But until next week, we are the dogs and we'll be back. I dreamed I saw Joey last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe. Killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill Joe, 
You're ten years dead. 